You are listening to the Life Church Podcast. To learn more about Life Church, our gathering times at any of our central Indiana locations, or our life crew online, visit us at lifechurchin.com or follow the link in the description. Today's talk is from Pastor Micah Beckwith. Well, good morning, Life Church. How are you? Good. It's good to see you. Hey, uh, my name is Pastor Micah, and we're so glad that you're joining us today. If you're a guest here, welcome uh, at Life Church. Just so you know, we are one campus, but we've got multiple locations. One church, multiple locations. There's four campuses. So Noblesville, Fishers, Pendleton, Eagle Creek. Uh, and then to our online community, thank you for joining us today. Uh, to the WHMB community that uh, airs, this, this will air every Sunday night. So thank you for tur- tuning in and, and uh, diving into the Word of God with us. So we go through Scripture verse by verse here at Life Church. It's called expository preaching. We, we think it's important that you know what God says about the issues, not what I think about it or, or say about it or what any other pastor on staff says, says about it. It is God's word. It's his truth. And so let's dive in today. And I'm going to pray for us. And then we're just going to pray that God opens our hearts to receive from him. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for what you're doing here at Life Church. God, teach us how to be warriors who walk in your truth and in your love. God, give us the boldness and the courage to enter into the battle. Father, open up our hearts to receive from you today what you have for us. Lord, let it be your word, your truth, and nothing but that. Lord, we love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. All right, so turn in your Bibles, if you will, to 2 Samuel chapter 10. So last week, we, we went through all of chapter 9, and we saw that David extended grace to a young man named Mephibosheth. He was the last descendant of the line of Saul. But because of David's friendship with Jonathan, Mephibosheth's father, David said to Mephibosheth, you were living like a dog, but now I'm going to bring you into my house I'm going to set you up at my table, and I'm going to treat you like one of my own sons. It was a beautiful, beautiful picture of grace. Because remember, Saul, his lineage has totally been struck down by God. Why? Because of Saul's disobedience to the commands of God. So God removed Saul and said to David, I'm going to raise you up to be king over my people. And so, so we see this, this amazing story play out, and Saul and David become enemies. They, David didn't see Saul as an enemy, but Saul saw David as an enemy. But the Lord protected David, raised David up to be the king. And David, last chapter, said, I want to show grace, unmerited favor to my, my best friend's family. Even though it was the family of Saul, is there anyone left of that house? And he found Mephibosheth and brought Mephibosheth in to live as part of the king's own children. What a beautiful story of grace. Now, in this chapter, we see that David goes out and he says, who else can I show grace to? I mean, David's just got an amazing graceful heart right now. He's just like, I want to bless other people. And so he gets word, and we see it here in in verse 1 of chapter 10. He gets word that the Ammonite king Nahash has died. And it says this, and, and this is the king of the Ammonites died, and Hanun, the son, reigned in his place. And David said, I will deal loyally with Hanun, the son of Nahash, as his father dealt loyally with me. So David sent by his servants to console him concerning his father, and David's servants came into the land of the Ammonites. So we see David looking around and saying, okay, here's another opportunity to extend grace. Now, Nahash was not necessarily a great ally to Israel, just the opposite. He was kind of a, uh, kind of a punk, and he was not really very, very friendly with King Saul. And we see Nahash come on the stage way back in 1 Samuel chapter 11. 
And I want to give you just a little history of Nahash because it'll show you how much more incredible David's heart of grace is for this guy. Because this guy did not really deserve grace in any stretch of the imagination. But he did deal kindly to David at some point. When we don't know exactly when that was, but most likely when David was running from Saul. Nahash would have looked at Saul as the enemy and said, well, David is the enemy of Saul. My enemy, if your enemy is my enemy, then that means we can be friends. And so David's probably remembering Nahash from a little bit better perspective than what the people of Israel and Saul would have remembered Nahash. But in 1 Samuel chapter 11, we see Nahash uh, comes out against the people of Israel. And it says this, Nahash the Ammonite went up and besieged Jabesh-Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, make a treaty with us and we will serve you. Okay, so this is right after King Saul was installed as king. So if you go back a chapter before, chapter 11 in 1 Samuel, Saul, this insecure man that God called to lead the people of Israel, he has now been established as king, but he's never fought a war. He doesn't know, like he, he's, not, he's not really defended the people of Israel. The people of Israel don't know how good of a king he's going to be. They're just trusting that he's going to be somewhat of a, of a good king. So now there's this conflict with a newly installed King Saul. There's this conflict. Nahash goes into the land of Israel to the people of Jabesh and besieges that whole, that whole, that whole uh, uh, area, the Jabesh-Gilead area. And so then they said, make a treaty with us because we don't really have a king. So, so he, like this guy named Saul, we don't know how strong he's going to be. So we want to make a treaty with you. This is what Nahash says. He says to them, on this condition, I will make a treaty with you that I gouge out all your right eyes and thus bring disgrace on all of Israel. <laughs> okay. Kind of interesting. And the response is even more interesting. So the elders of Jabesh say this. They said, give us seven days that we may send messengers through all the territory of Israel. Then if there's no one to save us, we will give ourselves up to you. <laughs> okay, that, what a wussy response. You're like, this guy, you know, this guy's going to gouge out your right eyes. And you're, you're saying, okay, give us seven days and we'll see if someone can come to our rescue. If not, you can have our right eyes. Now, why was it the right eye? Just a little bit of historical context. In those days, you held the shield with your left arm and your left eye was blocked by the shield and your right arm had the sword and your right eye would look out at the enemy. And if you didn't have a right eye, you couldn't go to war. And so what, what Nahash is doing, he's basically saying, I'm going to make you so you will never be able to defend yourself. You will only be dependent on me and I can be the tyrant leader over you and you can serve me all the days of your life. That's what he was doing. Like every tyrant king, he wants you to depend on him so he can control you. Tyrants do not like independence. They don't like people to be able to do for themselves anything because they want you to have to worship at their feet so that they can then give you whatever they want to give you. That's why here in the United States, we, are, we love the idea of independence. It's so that there's no one man that's going to rule over us, right? Not, we're not going to be succumb to tyrants. And, and so this is, the, this is Nahash. He's really a tyrant. But we see, though, that he helped David out at some point. And so now David's saying, I'm going to deal nicely and kindly with Nahash because he helped me out when I was running from Saul. The name Nahash actually means serpent. I think it's a pretty good, I think it's a pretty good indication of who he was. But remember, a godly man, David, is extending grace to a serpent tyrant king. All right? And I just want you to, I want that to sit in for a second. Like, you don't give grace to someone because they deserve it. You give grace to someone because you're modeling the heart of God. 
And I love the picture, the emblem, the seal of the United States, because it's that same concept. In its right talons, it has a cluster of olive branches. This eagle, this bald eagle, is holding a cluster of olive branches in its right talons. In its left talons, it has a cluster of arrows. And if you look at the head of the, the bald eagle, it's turned towards the cluster of olive branches, symbolizing we're always going to try to extend grace and be people of peace. But when necessary, we will take up arms and go to war to defend that peace. Make sense? And so that's what David's doing here. He's saying, okay, like, I don't want to go to war with Nahash. He's kind of a sleazy guy, but he did help me. I'm going to extend an olive branch to his son and his kingdom, and we'll see what happens. Uh, and I said it earlier, but most likely Nahash showed kindness to David when David was running from King Saul. So if you have your notes, you can fill that in. And just by the way, if you're new here, you get always, whenever I'm preaching, I give you, uh, I give you the notes. And I, do, I don't do it for you. Um, I do it for me so that you don't fall asleep during my message, and it gives you something to do, right? So, so that's because it, it makes me feel real bad when people are sleeping uh, during my message. So, if you're filling in the notes, all of the highlighted let, or words are the answers, just FYI, if you're new here. So, that's how it works. So, uh, it keeps you busy because I've fallen asleep through a couple messages before, too. So, uh, we're all in the same boat. Trust me, I get it. All right. Verse 3. Of chapter 10, but the princes of the Ammonites said to Hanan, their Lord, do you think because David has sent comforters to you that he is honoring your father? Has not David sent his servants to you to search the city and to spy it out and overthrow it? Okay. The Bible says there's wisdom in a multitude of counselors, but you have to be careful who your counselors are because you can get some really bad counsel. And here's what's happening. You have the counselors to the new king of the Ammonites giving them really, giving Hanan really bad, bad counsel. And I think these men were viewing David through the lens of their own shortcom shortcomings. Think about this for a second. They're saying he's coming in to spy out the land so he can overthrow the land. They didn't know the, last week I talked about knowing the heart of the king. You got to know the heart of the king. That's not what David was doing. David was genuine in, in what, he was, what he was doing. He was bringing good grace to these people. But they saw it as what they would do if they were in David's shoes. And they said, oh, surely we would take over the land. He's going to do the same thing. Now, how often do we as individuals do the same thing? We never give people the benefit of the doubt. It's really easy to assume the worst about somebody. Practice assuming the best until proven otherwise. You know, it's, it's kind of that uh, Reagan-esque kind of philosophy. Trust but verify, right? Like, I'm going to trust you, and I'm going to extend grace to you until I know without a doubt you are not operating in good faith. Well, here we have the counselors to Hanun. They're not, they're not even going down that path. They're saying, oh, no, he wants your land, king. So these are spies. And so the son Hanan, so Hanan, the son of Nahash, seized David's ambassadors and shaved off half of each man's beard and cut their robes at the buttocks. <laughs> I think it's hilarious. Just so you know, uh, one of the translations that I had on first just said cut their robes halfway down, but I wanted buttocks in there, so I found a translation <laughs> of scripture that said buttocks, just so I could say buttocks on stage. All right. <laughs> It's just, you know, that's what I do, all right? Okay, it's the middle, I'm a, I'm a middle school pastor, okay? That's, I, I worked with kids for a long time, and this is still, it's still there, so. All right, and sent them back to David in shame. All right, now why is this important? It was, it was, it was a slap in the face to King David. It was, com, it was seen as completely a humiliation tactic. Now, in those days, in ancient Israel, 
A man's beard was a symbol of two things. The first thing, it was a symbol of manhood. Now, all the men in this room who have beards, do me a favor, stand up real quick. Because we want to see, we want to see the manhood in this room, right? I love it. Look at these men. Everyone give it up for these men. Yeah. And praise God, no lady stood up, so that's good. I just, uh, you know, it's always a little, you know, like, oh. <laughs> All right. Now, we got some manly men at this church, and I love it. Uh, but in that day, the beard was that, was that symbol of manhood, and it was, the, it was a man's best ornament. And the way the Bible says a woman's or, best ornament is her hair, it's her glory, this was a man's best ornament. So when you grew into being that warrior-type leader in your nation, in your community, you would have a, an awesome beard. I think I may grow a beard now. I feel like I have to at this point, right? Like, how do I not? All right. Yeah. <laughs> so, so now the other aspect of a man's beard was also, it was a symbol of freedom. Now, this is how you would delineate between slaves and free people in the, ancient, in the ancient world. Those who had beards were free, and those who didn't have beards were slaves. So what he's basically saying, he's saying, no, 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 I'm going to humiliate you, and I'm going to, not only that, I'm going to cut off your robes halfway to your buttocks. Thank you. <laughs> but I'm going to actually say, you're, you're not going to even be free. I'm going to say, like, I'm, I'm threatening your freedom right now, David, and all of Israel. And again, David would, have, David would have understood the beauty of the beard. Even in Psalm 133, which David himself wrote, says this, Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron running down on the collar of his robes. So this is, this is a slap in the face. And the king's saying, I, I tried to extend grace. I wanted to seek peace with you. Because of your father, Hanun, but now you've gone, you done gone and done it. Okay? Right? <laughs> that, I saw that A.A. Ron, you know, like, all right, A.A. Ron, you've done gone and done it now, right? You know? <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, again, I just, so many squirrels, so many squirrels. It's very hard for me to stay on track. I apologize. Uh, okay, but remember, this all came about, this whole battle that now is going to ensue, that we'll see here in the next few verses all came about because the, the counselors, the men of Ammon, had a critical spirit. Had a critical spirit. If you're surrounded with people who have critical spirit, you've got to get new people. If you're married to somebody who has a critical spirit, we'll pray for you. Okay? <laughs> Don't get a new person, just we'll pray for you, okay? But, but critical thinking, or critical spirit, sorry, not critical think, thinking, critical spirits cause very negative worlds to unfold in a person's heart and a mind. And, and it actually, there was, a, there was a study done by the Harvard Business uh, uh, Review, and it actually, it actually studied what that critical spirit or that negative way of thinking did in the business world. And it was a fascinating study. It came out a few years ago. It says this, for every one negative comment, every one critical spirit comment, you need six positive comments to overcome what that, the, da the damage that that one negative comment did. So now think in your life, are you someone that tends to be critical all the time, and then you're wondering, why doesn't anyone want to work with me? Why doesn't anyone want to be my friend? Why is everyone always like kind of running from me? Well, maybe it's because you're bringing a critical spirit, and you weigh, you're the wet blanket. You just weigh everyone down. 
If you want to be blessed, if you want to prosper, try leading from a perspective of a positive spirit. Whether it's in your home, your business, your church, your community, your nation, be positive. There's a reason, I mentioned Ronald Reagan earlier, there's a reason Reagan was so popular in the early 80s. Because we were coming out of this, the highest inflation we've ever had. We had the Iran hostage uh, crisis going on. We, had, we were right in the middle of the Cold War. And all, everything looked bleak. And then you had this guy running for president that said, you know what? It's a new day in America. The sun is rising. There is hope. Our best days are in front of us still. He brought this positive spirit, and people said, yes, I want a good, I'm ready to go into battle now. Let's go. I can, I can unify and get behind that. He didn't come in saying, ah, this is, this is terrible, and that's terrible, and this needs, this is, we're all, you know, we're going to hell in a handbasket, you know? No, he, he could have done that, but he didn't. He said, no, we've got hope. We've got a future. That's a biblical truth. With Christ, you always have hope. You always have a future because he's come to give you life and life more abundantly is what the Bible says. Bring that spirit everywhere you go. Yeah, I know, like sometimes it's hard. There's things that are happening and and it, it can easily, like we're not saying to ignore all the bad things going on around you, but walk into it as a victor. Don't walk into it as a victim. Amen? So news gets back to David now about what has been done. And he sent to meet the men that have been humiliated with their beards being shaved off and their garments being cut. We'll just leave, we'll just leave it at that. Okay. <laughs> uh, all right. And uh, for, the, for the men were greatly ashamed. And the king said to them, remain at Jericho until your beards have grown and, and then return. Now, this is kind of a cool, this is a little bit of a side story to the main story, but I love how David cared about the dignity of his people. This is the shepherd heart coming out in David. He didn't just say, guys, suck it up. It's just a beard. Guys, suck it up. People just took selfies of your butt. You know what I mean? Wait a second. Hold on a second. You can't, selfie of a butt, that doesn't work. A selfie of a butt? How does that happen? No, people took pictures of your butt, okay? Like, oh my goodness. Okay, it's been a long morning. All right, so... He didn't just say, guys, suck it up. It's fine. Nobody cares. No, like he cared about the sm- seemingly the smaller thing, right? Like it's not, they didn't kill them. They didn't, they didn't destroy their, their village. I mean, there's, there's bigger things in life. Even back in that culture, there's still bigger things in life to be concerned with than just your beard. But, but David recognized, no, this is a big deal to them. may not be a big deal to everyone else, but it's a big deal to them. And I care about your dignity. I'm going to lead you and be empathetic. I'm going to empathize with you, and I'm not just going to, you know, just say, oh, just suck it up and, and move on. So that's, I think that's the shepherd heart in David. So he's taking care of his people, and I just, I love that, that verse. So now, when the Ammonites saw that they had become a stench to David, that's, that's a big word too. I mean, that's a big phrase, like a stench to David. So David is ticked now. Again, the olive branches in one hand and the arrows in the other. He said, you just slap my olive branches. Let's Rally the arrows together, because now we're going to war. And the Ammonites sent and hired the Syrians of Bethrehob and the Syrians of Zobah and 20,000 foot soldiers and the king of Makkah with 1,000 men and the men of Tob and 12,000 men. Um, or Tob, 12,000 men. So what's happening here, just so you know, whenever you'd go to war in the ancient days, you'd always first seek out to buy mercenaries. You'd want to, you'd want to hire mercenaries to go fight the front lines first. You want to keep your people, your men, uh, away from the, the intense fighting as long as possible. And so now the Ammonites are reaching out to some of these hired guns, and they're saying, hey, who wants to come and fight for us? We'll pay you this amount of money, and this is the army that now is being assembled. All enemies of Israel, but they're now coming to fight on behalf of the Ammonites. So that's, 
That's the context there. And when David heard of it, he sent for Joab and all the host of the mighty men. I just, I love the, I love the story of, of David's mighty men. I mean, these guys were just, I mean, they were the Navy SEALs of, of, Dave, of the Israel army. And they just were unafraid and willing to go to battle wherever the king, wherever God would lead. And I love this. So, so Joab and all the mighty men, Joab was the commander of David's army. And the Ammonites came out and drew up in the battle array at the entrance of the gate. Now, we don't, doesn't tell you right now what city that is, but that city is uh, Rabbah, which we will get into in a couple chapters down the road, and I'll, I'll explain that here in a second. And the Syrians of Zobah and Rehob and the men of Tob and Makkah were by themselves in the open country. So the city of Rabbah was the capital city of the Ammonites in the ancient world. It is actually the current present day city of Amman, Jordan. So if you're like me, you're kind of like, you want to see I like to visualize kind of what it was and where the battle lines are being drawn here. So you've got the, this is the map of ancient Israel. And you can see over here to the east of the Jordan, you have Amman, right? And so right below where it says Amman, you have uh, Rabbah, which that is the current day city of Amman uh, right up here. So north of the Dead Sea. And that's, that's the capital of current uh, Jordan. So just so you can kind of see the David's armies, they're moving, they're moving east and, and then they're going to have a flanking. They're going, to be, they're going to be flanked here, and you're going to see that here in just a second. So when Joab saw the battle was set out against him, both in the front and in the rear, he chose some of the best men of Israel and arrayed them against the Syrians. The rest of his men he put in the charge of Abishai, his brother, and he arrayed them against the Ammonites. Okay, remember Abishai? So Joab, Abishai, and Ahiel, they were the sons of Zerilla, or Zaharila. Is how you say that. She was her, uh, she was, she had these three mighty warrior sons. And remember, the, the youngest of the son was killed in battle when Saul's men were fighting David's men. And you have Joab uh, was, was the leader of David's army. And, and even Joab and David have a somewhat of a contentious relationship. Even David says, ah, Joab kind of can be rogue sometimes. And he recognizes his rogueness, but he also knows that he's a very skilled, gifted warrior, and so he sends him out to do battle against all the Armenians and the Syrians in this text. And he said, this is Joab, he says this to uh, Abishai, if the Syrians are too strong for me, then you shall help me, but if the Ammonites are too strong for you, then I will come and help you. And I love verse 12. This is an amazing verse, my favorite verse of the whole chapter. And it says this, Be of good courage and let us be courageous for our people and for the cities of our God. And may the Lord do what seems good to him. Now this right here, circle this, highlight this, this verse in your Bible. Come back to it. Remember, it's, it's, it shows two things. First, it shows you this, that feelings and circumstances do not dictate your courage and your strength. Your courage... And your strength, it's a matter of choice. Joshua says it to the people of Israel when he's leading the people into the promised land. He says, be courageous. He says, take courage. Fear not, for the Lord your God is with you. Right? Be strong and courageous, is what Joshua says. And now we have Joab echoing the same thing. Hey, Abishai, be courageous and take, and take strength and comfort in knowing that God is with us. It's a matter of choice when you walk into the battles that God is sending you into. You can walk in scared and afraid. You can walk in gender, gingerly, or you can go in with the spirit of the living God on your side, like Joab's doing here. And guess what? David modeled this when he was a 15-year-old boy, when he ran in the battle to, with Goliath. He said, you come at me with the sword and the spear, but I come at you in the name of the Lord God of heaven's armies. 
and he ran in the battle. He chose to be courageous. And the other aspect of verse 12 that I love, it's good theology. Joab has a really good theology here. It's a combination of divine sovereignty. God's going to do what God wants to do, but it also couples that with personal responsibility. Now, in the world of Christendom, there's two major camps of this God's sovereignty kind of world. You have over here on the more conservative side, you have this, uh, you have this idea of Calvinism. Okay, so Calvinism, and then over here, we'll say the more liberal side, it's Arminianism. And both kind of fall into their own ditches. Over in the Calvinist side, if you go way far to the right over here, you, you'll get people that say, I don't have to do anything because God is already going to do what God's going to do. And I can just sit back and wait for God to do it. He already chose who's going to be in heaven someday. He already knows what battles he's going to, you know, choose to fight and choose to win. He already wins the, the whole thing. Like, so there's really no purpose for us. We just literally sit here until sometime. I don't know what. I don't know when, right? We just sit here until God says, come home. And then you have over here, on the far end of this spectrum, you have what's called open theism. And open theism is an Arminius kind of take on, on, on God doesn't necessarily even know all of the smaller outcomes. God knows the end, but all the things that are going to happen, you know, day to day in your life, it's yet to be determined. And he chooses not to know what's going to happen. Therefore, you play a huge role. Your prayers and everything that you're doing plays a big role. I'm going to say that both ditches are wrong, okay? There is, God is in control, absolutely. He is, but, but look at it this way. As parents, you are in charge of your house, but you're not always in control of your house. Okay? That's a great way to kind of wrap your head around. God is in charge, but he gives you freedom to make choices, which therefore puts some of the control and responsibility in your hands. When I was growing up, my dad, wanted, he was a great, he took care of the yard really well. Had great flowers, great plants, great, uh, great grass. I mean, it was just, it was awesome. It was a beautiful yard. And so when I was about 10 years old, he wanted to teach me how to take care of the yard. So he said, all right, son, I'm going to be home, you know, at six o'clock tonight. When I come home, you better have the yard mowed. And so I would come, I would, you know, I'd, I'd forego playing baseball with my friends, you know, and I would come home because I'm like, oh man, dad's going to be here in a couple hours. I need to go mow. And then I would mow. And my dad would come home. He's like, great job, son. Looks great. And he would then go put on his yard working clothes and re-mow the yard that I just mowed. <laughs> and he would do this for the next couple years to the point where I'm like, why am I doing this? If you're going to mow it, then just mow it. But what he was doing is he was very particular. He liked it to be perfect, okay? So and I, as a 10-year-old, I wasn't perfect at it, but he wanted to train me in how to take care of my yard. Now when I mow, guess what? I'm doing the same thing. Brody, he's five now, and, and, or he's six, and so the other day I had him out with the mower the first time, and I mean, the lines are like all over the place. And he's like, I did it, Dad. I'm like, great, son, awesome job. Give him a high five. Okay, now go inside, go get, you know, my, your mom's got an ice cream sandwich for you. He goes inside, I grab the mower and like remow it, stripe it perfectly, you know? But it's, it's the heart of the father to train up the children to do what the father does. That's what God's doing in all of this divine story that you're a part of. He doesn't want you to be a robot and he doesn't want you to be a lazy kid that just sits in the palace waiting for him to do everything. He's got a calling on your life to do something. Could God do it all on his own? Absolutely. Without a doubt, he could. But he chooses to use you and I. 
Praise God, because now we get to play a, a part in this incredible story. And we get, to, we get to be celebrated by God the Father. Look how he looked at Job in the, in the book of Job. The earliest book that we have on record is the book of Job. And we see way back in, in, in you know, 5,000 years ago, there's this story of God bragging on one of his children who he's super proud of because of what his, children is, what his child is doing. Satan comes into the throne room and the Lord says, hey, Satan, have you considered my servant Job? Look at how amazing he is. And then we have that story play out where Satan says, yeah, but the only reason he, he loves you is because you give him everything that he asked for and you bless him the way you do. And the Lord says, okay, we'll test him. I will let you test him. You can't take his life, but you can start removing those blessings from his life. And sure enough, one by one, the blessings of Job go away and Job never curses God. He asks some hard questions of God and God responds and says to Job, put on your big boy pants. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? But God, ultimately, God bragged about Job. Does God brag about you? He's like, look at my servant. Look what my son, look what my daughter is doing on earth right now. Is he, is he calling the heavenly hosts in to the throne room and saying, let me tell you about the, my children at Life Church." That's, that's the heart of the Father. He wants to be doing that. And so this whole verse 12 is beautiful theology. It wraps in divine sovereignty and personal responsi responsibility. Joab and his men have to go into the battle. And God has ordained the end. He orda he's ordaining the victory, but he's also ordaining the means to the end. And if Joab and Abishai and David never engaged in the battle, there would have been no victory. And so for the people of God, you have to remember that just because God is sovereign, there may not be a victory if you don't go into that battle. You know, the Bible says that it's not God's will that any should perish. That means die and go to hell. It's not God's will. God never wanted any human being to go to hell, but people die and go to hell every single day. So there's an aspect of God's will that is not being accomplished. Where is the disconnect? I would argue it's with us because we aren't walking in our personal responsibility as sons and daughters the way that we probably should be. So we've got to get out there and move and fight and go to battle. And so if, if you don't, you will never see victory. But if you do, and you're walking in the commands of the Lord, you will see great victory. In verse 13, so Joab and the people were with him, uh, and the people who were with him drew near to the battle against the Syrians, and they fled before him. And when the Ammonites saw that the Syrians fled, they likewise fled before Abishai and entered the city. Then Joab returned from fighting against the Ammonites and came to Jerusalem. Now here's a principle I want you all to remember. Circle this concept in your notes and underscore this next, this next verse I'm going to take you to here in a second. When you keep God's commands, you will be greatly blessed in everything you do. And this is a principle that Moses laid out for all of God's people in the wilderness and for even to today. And it's found in Deuteronomy chapter 28. And it start, in, in verse 1, it says this, And if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, be careful, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you, to, you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. And all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you, if you obey the voice of the Lord your God. Blessed shall you be in the city, and blessed shall you be in the field. Blessed shall be the fruit of your womb, and the fruit of your ground, and the fruit of your cattle, and the increase of your herds, and the young of your flock. Blessed shall your basket 
be and your need, kneading bowl be. Blessed shall you be when you come in and blessed shall you be when you go out. The Lord will cause your enemies who rise against you to be defeated before you. They shall come out against you one way and flee before you seven ways. The Lord will command the blessing on you and your barns and all that you undertake, and he will bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. The Lord will establish you as a people holy to himself as he has sworn to you if you keep the commandments of the Lord your God and walk in his ways. And all the peoples of the earth shall see that you are called by the name of the Lord, and they shall be afraid of you. Woo! That is what I want our testimony to be right there. We're blessed when we come in, and we're blessed when we go out. Our baskets are overflowing. We can't even store all the blessings of the Lord. But it all comes back to the question of, are we keeping his commands? Are we doing what he says is right, and are we, we walking away and rejecting what he says is wrong? And if we're doing that, church, I promise you, these blessings are going to befall upon us so awesome that your children and children's children will be blessed. And the people around you, even your enemies, will say, I'm afraid of that going to battle with that person because every time I do, there's some supernatural force that gets in my way and makes it really bad whenever I go to war with that, with that person. That is the heart of the warrior, the child, the son and the daughter of the living king. Let that be our testimony. But when the Syrians saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they gathered themselves together, and Hadiazar sent and brought out the Syrians who were beyond the Euphrates. They came to Halem with Shabak and the commander, uh, the commander of the army of Hadiazar at the head. Now remember, Hadiazar, David just beat Hadiazar in a few chapters uh, earlier. So this is the second time that we see Hadiazar is, is engaging with, with David. And when it was told David, he gathered all Israel together and crossed the Jordan and came to Halem. The Syrians arrayed themselves against David and fought with him. Now, I want you to remember, this was, they, they, the, first of all, the enemy rose up against Joab and Abishai and fleed multiple ways. Okay? They regrouped, and now they're coming at the armies of Israel again. What does this tell you? The enemies of God will always be persistent until they are ultimately totally defeated when Jesus Christ puts an end to it when he, and when he comes back. What a beautiful, awesome day that will be, but that is not this day. And so if you think you're going to be able to get out of the battle, I'm here to tell you, you might have won a battle a few weeks ago, but learn from it, grow from it, and be ready to move into another battle because the enemy is going to come right back at you. They're not going away. Even Jesus dealt with this. When Jesus started his ministry, he goes out into the wilderness and is tempted for 40 days before he, he moved into just kicking butt for three years on earth. But he was tempted by the devil. He was, at the end of the 40 days, he was physically, emotionally, and spiritually exhausted. And the devil comes to him at the right time and begins to tempt him. But Jesus stands strong using the word of God and rejects the devil. And the Bible says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. This is exactly what happened in Luke 4, verse 13. And when the devil had ended every temptation unsuccessfully, he departed from him until an opportune time. Okay, so what is, what is he doing? He got his butt kicked. He's stepping back, and he's waiting for another time. Now, when was the opportune time that this is referring to in Scripture? Almost the Garden of Gethsemane. When Jesus was on his knees, he was emotionally physically and spiritually exhausted, and the devil begins to tempt him. Well, maybe this cup can be taken from you. 
Maybe you don't have to go to the cross, Jesus. Maybe there's another way, Jesus. I'm sure God can do it. He's sovereign. He can make a way. Everything's possible for God, right? And what does Jesus do? He gives it over to the Father. He says, Father, not my will be done, but yours. I wish this cup could pass from me. If there's any other way, but not my will, yours be done. And he won that temptation as well, and he went to the cross, and his wounds and his scars have set us free because of the battle that our commander showed us how to walk through and how to, how to be that warrior. And you've got to learn, I've got to learn, and we've got to grow every time we go into battle. We've got to, we're going to have the victory, sure. We're going to make mistakes. We're going to have missteps. There will be some battles that are harder than others. Step back after every battle and say, all right, Lord, what did you want me to learn? How can I grow in this? How can I be that son, that daughter that takes it to the next level, next battle? You know, there's, there was, I was having a conversation with a, a lady a few weeks ago after she came to one of the library meetings, the library board meetings. I sit on the library board, and if you ever want to see a kind of a demonic, you know, show, just come to the library board meeting, and there's a lot of, a lot of demonic stuff going on there, and people are pushing for it, and we're trying to remove, we're trying to remove pornographic material from the kids and children's section, and, and it, we're getting hit with this, you know, yeah, well, thank you. And, and so there's, there, but there's a battle going on. And every time you go, I go to these library board meetings, it's walking into the battlefield. And there's arrows that you're going to take. They're gonna, some are going to sting when you, when you take them. And a lady came up to me and she said, uh, she said, Micah, that was the first battle, that was the first board meeting I was at. How do you handle that? That was hard. That was heavy. That was, and I just said, hey, I felt the exact same way when I walked into that first board meeting a year ago. Heavy. Walked out of it thinking, oh my goodness, Lord, help me. What do I do? But now, a year into it, I'm kind of going into it and being like, all right, this is kind of fun. Like, <laughs> I'm ready for this. I, I know, right? I've learned. I've grown. I've known, I know how to say what I need to say when I need to say it. I can keep my mouth shut and let, and let you know, the Haman's, Haman's gallows be built when I have to, right? Like, I can just sit back and then I know how to, how to throw the, shoot the arrows, when I need to shoot him. And God has taught me, and he's still teaching me. I don't get it right every time, but he's still teaching me. But I, I can tell you right now, I'm a, I, I'm a lot more equipped than I was a year ago. And I'm sure two years from now, I'll be even more equipped than I am now. You learn and you grow on the battlefield as a child of God. And after this battle, as we wrap up this passage here, the Syrians fled before Israel, and David killed of the Syrians the men of 700 chariots, and 40,000 horsemen, and wounded Shobach, the commander of their army, so that he died there. And when all the kings who were servants of Hadiezer saw that he had been defeated by Israel, they made peace with Israel and became subject to them. So the Syrians were afraid to save the Ammonites anymore. Now, 40,000 men in a battle. It doesn't tell us how many of the Israelites were wounded or killed, but I'm sure there were some. You don't go into a battle like that and not have some casualties and not take some arrows and, and have some scars. And I don't know your background. I don't know where you're coming from today, but I can tell you this. If you are a follower of Jesus, I probably know one thing about you. You've been in some battles and you probably have some scars and you probably have some wounds. And it may hurt and it may sting and you may say, I don't know, I don't know if I can do this battle thing. And I just want you to remember that those who follow Jesus are going to look like Jesus. 
Those who take on his cross are going to take on his persecution. But remember, the victory is his. And if you're faithful in this life, in those battles, 10,000 years from now, when we are fighting no more battles, when Jesus has put an end to all of evil, we get to look back and say, do you remember when we stepped on that battlefield in Hamilton County that one time? Do you remember when God led us across the world and rescued those women from sex trafficking in India and we stepped foot on that battlefield? Do you remember when God showed up in my life when I was dealing with these health issues and it was a battle and I, had, I, thought, my, I thought the end was near, but I prayed and got warriors to pray with me and God stepped in and gave us the victory? you remember that? And the warriors 10,000 years from now are going to be like, yeah, we were right there with you in the battle. And then the warriors of old, the Joshua's and the David's and the Joab's are going to come up to you and they're going to say, hey, tell us about that time in Hamilton County. I know you guys were talking about what I did in ancient Israel, but I want to hear about what you did in Indiana, in the United States. That's the conversation that's going to happen. And when you walk with warriors, the conversation is always different. You come at it from a victory standpoint. You don't come at it from a victim standpoint. And I think what God's doing here at Life Church is awesome because there are warriors coming all over the place to this, this church. And as we go into this last song, and I'm going to invite the prayer team down. Prayer team, you can come down now. And I want to give you a chance to partner, to link arms with fellow warriors, prayer warriors, people who have been in the battle. Maybe you're going through a battle right now and you just need someone to stand with you in that battle. This is what this time is for. This is what this community is for. It's not just this time. It's, it's every day, seven days a week, 24 hours a day. If you need warriors to stand with you, this is why God is raising up Life Church community. Because he wants to send reinforcements into your battle. Not only his angels, but also his sons and his daughters. There's a great poem that was written in the early 1900s by a woman named Amy Carmichael, and she rescued orphans over in India. She had a lot of wounds and a lot of scars from the battles that she endured in her life. But she wrote this beautiful poem, and it's called, Hast Thou No Scars? And it's written from the perspective of Jesus talking to us. And it goes like this. It says this, Hast thou no scar, no hidden scar on foot or side or hand? I hear thee sung as mighty in the land. I hear them hail thy bright ascendant star. Hast thou no scar? Hast thou no wound? Yet I was wounded by the archer spent. Lean me against a tree to die and rent. By ravening beasts that compassed me, I swooned. Hast, hast thou no wound? No wound, no scar. Yet as the master shall the servant be, and pierced are the feet that follow me. But thine are whole. Can he have followed far? Who has no wound or scar? If you're here today and you have no wound or scar, I would say, are you really following Jesus? And if you're here today and you're saying, I've got a lot of wounds and scars, I would say, remember that you're looking more like Jesus with every wound and every scar that comes from the battles that the Lord calls you into. Remember, as you take those arrows, as you get wounded, as they sting a little bit, remember that you're beginning to look more like your Savior, your Master, 
who has many wounds, many stripes. And someday you will be able to see and to touch those wounds of our Savior. You'll be able to see the holes in His hands and in His feet, the spear that pierced His side and the stripes on His back so that we were all able to come to God in need. In that great glorious supper of the Lamb. That's what a warrior in the kingdom of God looks like. Wounded, yes. Scarred, yes. But always victorious. Amen. If you were encouraged by today's talk, be sure to rate us, share with a friend, and hit subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you stream your podcasts. Our mission is simple. Come to life, connect to grow, find your purpose, make a difference. Thanks for listening to the Life Church Podcast.